So this morning, um, we're continuing in our series, uh, The Pillars of Our Faith. And Mason, before you walk out and freshen up, um, thanks for the great worship this morning. Um, as always, I think you're paying really careful attention to, to one, one, what the Holy Spirit's doing, um, two, but where we are in our series. And so reprise, do uh, Magnificent Marvelous again. I just, uh, I, I, so that's good. You can go do what you need to do. Um, but I, I just know that there's times that thinking through uh, where I'm going in the message and, and then getting the opportunity to worship, I, I kind of get a little bit ahead of y'all. And so just the, the, the focus of Magnificent, Marvelous, Matchless Love, uh, it's going to really, I hope, bookend the sermon really well. Um, so we're going to be looking today at the incarnation. And I, what I would title this message is simply this, Jesus, fully God and fully man. Jesus, fully God and fully man. Um, as I was preparing, I came across this statement by a guy named David Wells, and he says this. I thought, I thought this is just a, um, a great summary of, of things that we're addressing in the contemporary world uh, with why people, uh, I, I don't want to say compromise, but why people tend to, to emphasize some things wrong about the person of Christ. And I do think what it leads to is a misunderstanding and misapplication in our lives of the, the importance of Christ. And that impacts our worship. It impacts our uh, willingness to be evangelistic. It impacts our own personal growth. So here's what David Wells says. Um, contemporary Christology. So that, that has, he's pointing to this idea of what, the, what we conceptualize or think about in our contemporary world about Christ himself. He says, often takes on the form of orthodoxy, insisting, now that's a key. He says the form of orthodoxy. He doesn't say it takes on orthodoxy. Okay, so let me um, read it again. Contemporary Christology often takes on the form of orthodoxy, insisting that Christ must, first and foremost, be said to be fully human. The word human is then transformed into a synonym for 20th century secular modernity. Now, that's the key. He's saying we take this idea of what Jesus, it means for Jesus to be fully human, and it, we turn it into this idea about secular identity, what, what it means for us as modern people to think about secular identity. So it, it's like we've put this twist on the importance of, of who humanity is. It's, and he continues, it is then assumed that to be human, such a Christ must be fallible as we are, as confused, as filled with doubts, as unsure about the future, as agnostic about the purposes and plans of God. And I thought, man, that, that is, he's nailed it. Because we, we, the contemporary world tends to elevate the humanity of Jesus and say, he's like us. And that's exactly the wrong way to understand Jesus. And um, so it, it reminded me when I read that, about a book that came up years ago. And if you like this book, I'm, I'm, I mean, we can have some uh, good dialogue about it. I, I don't like this book personally. Um, I understand what the intents of the book are. And if you're seeing the, the cover and know where I'm going, that's fine. You'll, you'll grin, um, some of you. Uh, but the reason I struggle with this book so much is because when it was uh, the second publishing, 
it emphasized a theological direction that it wanted to take things. And personally, as I read through this, I was like, there's a lot of compromise uh, in this. And so I'm going to read a couple passages to begin with. And this book is called The Shack um, by William Young. Um, and it, it came out, I think, in 2015. So it's, it's a little bit dated, or 2012. Anyhow, it's a little bit dated now. It kind of made this big splash. And then, like most books, because it's not biblical um, or, or biblically founded or scriptural, it kind of makes the splash or makes the big wave, and then it just dissipates because you don't hear about this much anymore, even though there was a movie made uh, and those kind of things. Um, by the way, the movie was junk. Um, anyhow, so let me read a couple passages and uh, tell you uh, that this will help us think through this contemporary issue. So, so listen to this. Um, when we three spoke ourselves... Our, uh, let me back up. When we three spoke ourselves into human existence as the Son of God, we became fully human. We also chose to embrace all the limitations that this entailed. Even though we have always been present in this created universe, we now became flesh and blood. Does, does that make y'all rattle your heads and go, what? What's the issue there? Say, say it loud. Yes. And, and did we spoke ourselves into human existence? There's one person that did not speak himself into human existence. He became flesh through the Holy Spirit and Mary. Okay? That, that's clear, right? And, and that's confusing to me at best. Um, listen to this. This is a little further. He says... Um, He's using this, in, and this is the father speaking to the, the main character, and he, he's talking about Jesus, and he says, um, although he is fully God, he has never drawn upon his nature as God to do anything. What? He has only lived out of his relationship with me, living in the, same, in the very same manner that I desire to be in relationship with every human being. He is just the first to do it to the uttermost, the first to absolutely trust my life within him, the first to believe in my love and my goodness without regard for appearance or consequence. Folks, that's messy. That, that, it's like he is fully God. He, he is fully God, but he's never drawn upon his nature as God to do anything. Did Christ ever draw upon his nature as God? He absolutely did, and I'm going to prove that to you through the message this morning, okay? So, so let me go on. That's a couple of passages. Um, here's one more. Like I said, everything is about him. Creation and history are all about Jesus. That's good stuff. He is the very center of our purpose, and in him we are now fully human. Wait a second. In, in Jesus, the three persons of the Godhead are fully human? No. Jesus the Son, the Son alone, is fully human, okay? Error. And uh, let me read one more. Um, so keep in mind, Mackenzie, that I am not a human being, not in my very nature, despite how we have chosen to be with you this weekend. I'm truly human in Jesus, but I am totally separate, other in my nature. Well, that, that's actually more accurate, isn't it? So there's this inconsistency. And to be fair, I'm going to go back and read one place. Um, says this, uh, we are not three gods, and we are not talking about one God with three attitudes, like a man who is a husband, father, and worker. I am one God, and I am three persons, and each of the three is fully and entirely the one. Well, that's accurate, okay? So, so 
Why do I point that out? Because when I read David Wells' statement about this understanding of who Christ is in contemporary culture, that we look at at Christ through human lens, saying we're going to filter what we believe about Christ through our own humanity rather than what the Scriptures teach, it it reminded me of the confusing nature of this book. And, And I've had conversations with dear friends about the shack. And I've told them this is at best confusing. Because though he says one thing right, there's other things in this that are absolutely inaccurate. Yet, yet people wanted to and, and still do embrace the theological implications of that book. And at best, they're compromised in their understanding of who the Lord is, who the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are because of this work. It's not sound. And folks, this is the point of, of why we're doing these pillars of our faith. If we don't have sound theology, we will be in jeopardy and we are open to compromise. It's just bottom line. And then if we're, if we're not sound and we are open or in jeopardy or open to compromise, how do we present the gospel accurately in the person of God well in his Father, Son, or as Father, Son, and Spirit? We can't if we don't understand these things. So, so don't think that I'm just on some kind of, you know, theological soapbox. This is the reality of of the life that we live in. And and people are out there with heterodox theology or unorthodox theology, and it saturates our culture. And we have to, one, be aware of it. Two, we have to be sound enough in our own theology that in our awareness we go, that's false. We can identify these things and go, that does not need to be pursued. The reason I bought this book and marked it up is because when I started hearing about the splash it was making and I, I heard a little bit of the danger, I was like, I need to know. I need to know to, to converse with my friends, to make sure that we as a church don't fall into these things. And I know that's years ago, but again, when, when did the movie come out? Like two or three years ago? I mean, it's, it's, there's this kind of continued push. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, I think we need to have a sound, basic theology, a pillar of our faith on what the importance of the incarnation is. So take your Bibles and let's turn to John chapter 1. Shouldn't be any surprise that we're going here. So John chapter 1, we're going to look at, first of all, the divinity of Jesus. We're going to read verses 1 through 3, and then I'm going to just hopefully break down a little bit about this, okay? So John 1, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jump down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So let me give you a couple of uh, key things first. When we look at John 1, the first thing that we learn is that the Word is set in relationship to God, okay? That this Word, and we learn, and why jump down to verse 14, who is the Word? If we just stopped at 1 through 3, you might go, what does all that mean? The Word is a, 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 like a metaphorical term, 
I, I think it's, it's uh, also has some very concrete ideas that go with it about this, the, the communication of the lordship uh, of God, the Godhead that comes through Jesus, okay? But the word we know is the Son of God. It's Jesus himself. And so when we think about what is happening in John or what he's communicating in verse 1, he's talking about the relation of the Word, who is Jesus' Son, with God the Father. And what does he say about it? Two specific things. He says, first of all, the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God. So, so the idea of being with something, this, and I'm, I'm going to go here, Okay. I mentioned a church in our area um, a couple, about a month ago now, maybe, um, and, and I'm, I'm going to name the church, okay, because I think y'all need to have enough awareness that, that when somebody comes into your world and, and they maybe uh, are under the influence of that church in any kind of manner, okay, you, you need to have like antenna that go, how discerning are they being, how carefully are they walking, Okay? And it's the church of the firstborn, which is so ironic to me. Um, and, and it's the church of the firstborn, Nashville. It's up in the, the White House area, kind of between White House and um, Cross Plains, I think, or, or Greenbrier. It's, it's off the beaten path a little bit. So the church does not hold to the Trinity. They, they deny the fact that the, the Bible ever speaks of three persons, um, and if you want to get into it, it's kind of buried deep in a weird document um, on their website. But they absolutely deny the concept of the Trinity. Now, here's my point of saying this and, and where I think we're here. When we look at what John 1 says, the whole concept of, of the word being with God emphasizes there's two different entities. And I'm just going to use that word as a, a, a broad sense, okay? Because if the word was only God... Well, that makes sense to me to say it was the same in essence and being and all those things that we've talked about with the ontology of, of God himself and his, his nature. But by this concept of the word being with God, there's something separate about them. Does that make sense? And, and just simply, I went back and looked at the Greek. The, the word it, with is in the Greek originally, okay? Now, it's not the word with. It's the Greek word for with, but y'all get what I'm saying. It emphasizes their separate aspects, okay? And what we would say is the persons of the Godhead. It's that clear and it's that simple. So you begin with this concept, there are at least two persons, and we'll see later that there are three because of how Jesus relates to the Holy Spirit. But there's three persons clearly identified, and they're he was God. The Word was God. His nature and essence is the very same as God. And then to go on, so we have the with God, was God, fully divine, ontologically the same in essence and being. Let me, let me um, e even give you this. Let's go to, because I don't want to just prove it from John 1. Look over at Hebrews 1.3 real quick. Keep, keep a ribbon, and if you have a Bible uh, that has a ribbon in it, um, put, put that in, John, because we're going to go back there. Um, let's look at Hebrews 1.3. So here, and the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing the same thing. He says, he's, he's talked about, um, let's just read verses 1 through 3 to begin with. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's that idea of John 1 in the word, okay? That spoken concept, the communication, the revelation of God to us through the son, okay? So here's what he continues in uh, verse 2. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, so again, you have this sitting beside majesty on high. There's a distinction in the persons, but you also have this idea of he's the glory and the exact imprint of his nature. That is because he is fully divine. Ontologically, Jesus Christ is fully God, fully divine. So, so you begin to see these things develop clearly in Scripture. Uh, if you have, if you're in a Bible drill mood, turn over to Colossians 2.9 real quick. I'll give you just a second. Colossians 2.9. If you're taking notes, make sure to write it down. Colossians 2.9, it says this, for in him, being Jesus, you can look back at verse uh, 8, it says that it is according to Christ, for in him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, boom. <laughs> That's like such a, like drop the mic statement. In Jesus Christ, the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. It, it's so clear. So, so folks, when we are looking at this pillar of our faith and having a biblical Christology, we have to not begin with the lens of humanity and our struggles and our imperfections and, and thinking through who we are, yes, created in the image of God, but we can't look through our lens. We have to understand who Christ is via the lens of Scripture. And when we do that, we get these clear indications this clear communication about his divinity. And we have to wrestle through these things. We have to uh, uh, um, accept the truth of Scripture as authority. And then we need to be prepared, filing a couple of these key passages away so that when we encounter folks with wrong teaching, we can stand firm, confidently in the Word of God to defend our faith, and to encourage them towards a healthy understanding of Scripture and the Godhead. Is that clear enough? Okay, so let's keep going. So we, we see, and, and what I would say what I've described so far is the divine person of Jesus in his essence. Okay, looking at that ontological in his nature as being, all those things about who he is. Now, Let's, we've, we've hit this a little bit, but I want to point it out. Not only do we see it in his nature, his essence, we also see it in his work, in his acting in creation. So let's go back to John 1, verse 3. This is why I kept, told you to keep ribbons around, okay? John 1, 3. Um, it says, all things were made through him. Who is the author of creation? Well, I would say it's God the Father, Godhead together, they're one in essence, it's their one will. They did, they, they conceptualize this in three persons in their one nature. But the work of creation was enacted through Jesus. It's amazing. He is responsible for creation. So, so we, that is no small thing. Look at Colossians, back at Colossians 1 verse 16. We'll be on a little Bible drill this morning, so hang in there. Colossians 1 16. 
Again, Paul writing here to the church at Colossae, he emphasizes this. And let me go to verse 15 uh, as well and just give a little more context. context. He is the image of the invisible God. Okay? Going back to Christ, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Again, it's such a powerful picture about the person of Jesus Christ and who he is. So he is fully divine. Here we have this idea of him being the image of the invisible God. And he is the one who, uh, by all things, were created. Right? And, and not just through him created, but for him. So, so it's not as if he's robbing God the Father of glory because, he is the, because Jesus is the creator. He is worthy of receiving the glory himself for those same acts. So, so his divine person is essential. It's essential that we understand what Scripture communicates about him. Uh, look back at Hebrews 1.3 again. If you didn't pick this up, we'll see it again. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I don't know how... <laughs> How much clearer we can make it biblically, right? Who Jesus is, he is fully God. He is responsible for creation. All things bring glory and honor to him. And it is for him that the world was created. So, one, one other just idea. Um, I referenced Joel 2 last week. 228, and the prophecy that Joel made regarding the future uh, of the, the coming Messiah. And one of the things that is important about that passage is that that's what Peter, one of the passages, many passages that, that Peter referenced in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when, when Peter gets up and preaches. And so why that's significant is, is here's the, the tie that I want to make in, not only the prophetic aspect and the fulfillment of that in Jesus, but what Peter's also identifying is that the falling of the Spirit upon the church there in Acts is the inauguration of a new kingdom that Jesus Christ accomplishes. So my point being, the kingdom, the church kingdom, if you will, the kingdom of the Lord that is what Jesus inaugurates upon his ascension and his leaving behind of the Holy Spirit to continue the work of the gospel in people's lives. That, that sh it, it shouldn't work if Jesus was not fully divine. But by him being fully divine, he has the authority. Now, let me also remark on this. In all these passages that we've read about the authority of Christ, did you notice that he is supreme above every other authority, dominion, power, He's the creator of it all, and he's supreme. Don't let that be lost on you. If God was to share that with anyone, they would have to be equal. Does that make sense? If, if God shared that with someone that was unequal, he couldn't be above all authority, okay? But, but by that, he is equal, in essence, fully divine, equal with the Father and the Spirit. So, this is an interesting passage. Turn over to, to Romans 8. Um, in Romans 8, we'll be in verse 35, um, so, so we've seen Christ's 
as fully divine. We've seen him in the works of creation, in the inauguration of the kingdom. Now we're going to look and see how he also shares in the divine attributes with the Father. The, the same things that we looked at over the last several weeks that describe God the Father are the, the truth of who God himself is in his nature, essence, and being. These same things are ascribed to Jesus Christ. So Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as, a, as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what attribute is established here that Christ is responsible for expressing to us on behalf of the Godhead? It's love. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors. Why? Because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's, that's an amazing truth that we need to cling to. When we are desperate for the love of God, we need to run to Jesus. We, we need to run to Him and recognize that there's no height, no depth, nothing. Nothing can separate us from that, the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. And, and we need to learn and love Jesus well. Because when we do, we are loving and learning the, the truth of who the Godhead is well. And he honors and blesses us for that. Look at Hebrews 7.26. Y'all doing all right in Bible drill this morning? Does, this take, does it take anybody back like years I, I, I just remember fourth grade, standing in a Sunday school room in the basement of a church, brick walls or concrete block walls, you know, present Bible and, you know, all that stuff and drilling at home with my mom. I wasn't a believer then, but I look back and go, man, that was so providential for God to give me a handle on the Word of God so that when I did come to Him as a 20-year-old, because I would have been nine as a fourth grader, so, you know, some 11 years later... It was fundamental, and little did I know then I'd be doing this every Sunday, you know, more. So, Hebrews 7, 26. Um, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. Now, who's the high priest in Hebrews? That would be Jesus, our high priest, okay? So, it is indeed fitting that we should have a high, such a high priest, holy only God is holy. So for Jesus to have the attribute of holiness here as the high priest, it's key that he is holy, that he is innocent, that he is unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. What a picture of this attribute of Jesus that is the same attribute of God himself. It, it speaks to his divinity and his personhood that he is truly equal Fully divine, equal in nature, essence, being, every attribute describing that. Here's, here's an interesting one, and you can just write this down. In Acts 3.14, he is called, Jesus, Acts 3.14, Jesus is called the holy and righteous one, the author of life. Holy, righteous, what great attributes to be ascribed to him. Here's another one. 
This is, this is especially where it comes back to this group, um, you know, folks that say that he didn't act in divine ways when he was human, that he just laid aside his divine attributes and in, in, uh, whole. Do you remember in, and this is actually occurs in uh, John chapter 6, um, actually John chapter 1. Um, John chapter 1, Jesus is you know, obviously just kind of coming onto the scene of ministry. And do you remember when Nathaniel and Philip um, are in, engaged in this conversation, Philip basically approaches Nathaniel and says, I, I've discovered who the Messiah is. And when Nathaniel goes to meet Jesus, Jesus describes him and tells him, you didn't have faith when you were sitting under the fig tree. Jesus knew what happened. And that's what convinced Nathaniel that Jesus was truly the Messiah. Because he knew the only way for Jesus to know that would for, was for him to be omniscient. In John 6, 64, there's a little parenthetical that's really interesting. It, it attributes Jesus with knowing at that point who would betray him. That he knew Judas at that point was the one who would betray him. Omniscience. He, he fully understood he had, had, now, did, were there moments that he did set his divine knowledge aside? Yeah, because in, as a human, he grew and understood and learned in his knowledge and wisdom. Now, can I fully understand that? No, because the incarnation is still a mystery to us. But at the same time, we know that these two natures operated uh, distinctly. So, um, think about this. Too. And I'm not going to get into all the scripture. You can think about how Jesus displayed his divine rule over nature, settling the wind and waves, how he overcame demonic presence, showing his power and authority over spirits, uh, that he uh, ultimately he never declined even the, the, when, uh, when the directed uh, of worship that was described to him. Does that make sense? I know I'm struggling to get my words, but when people worshiped him, he didn't say, that's wrong, stop. He received that, okay? So we got to ask this. What is the incarnation? We know this from Scripture, and we go back to John chapter 1. So let's go back there and look. And it's simple. I read it already, but I want to reiterate it. In John 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what we know from the earlier, or from other Gospels in the birth narratives, was the Holy Spirit is the one who conceived Jesus the, the, in, the, in Mary, and she was the one responsible for the physical attributes of birth, not a human father. The Holy Spirit was the father in that sense, and Mary provided the human attributes. Now, what happens, and I want to describe this because I think this is important. Let's look in first what the incarnation is not, because I think that will help us in some ways. So first of all, the incarnation is not the Son of God converting into our human nature. He does not convert into our human nature. And, and, and so, so in some way, like morph the, the divine nature into human nature. That does not happen, okay? It is, uh, he doesn't leave aside his divinity in that self, okay, or in that way. It is not a fusion of the two natures. It's not a blending of the divine nature and the human nature together. That, that's wrong, okay? Uh, this would compromise both natures. So that that's clearly can't happen. It's not the fusion of the two persons, uh, of a divine person and a human person. 
and that may be a little confusing, but I want to just throw that out. I'm not going to get into unpacking that a whole lot, okay? So what, what is the incarnation? That, that's what we need to really focus on now. The inca- incarnation is this. It is the person of the Son of God remaining fully divine in nature and assuming the nature of humanity. So in the one person of Jesus, you have, and, and this is a gross illustration, but I'm going to just try to do it. You have like the divine nature and the human nature. And it's not like they're, you know, attached. Just, you got to understand there's two natures in the one person. I mean, we can, we can get our minds wrapped around the concept, but how that like works out, it's hard. It still is mysterious. Let me, let me try this. What we need to do, and I think this is helpful, it's the preservation of each nature distinctly in the one person. That may even bring a little bit more clarity. It's the preservation of each nature, the divine nature and the human nature, in the one person of Jesus. So, how do we, well, let's talk about this first. Why did we need that? Turn to Hebrews, back to Hebrews chapter 1. Actually, Hebrews chapter 2, sorry. Hebrews chapter 2. This is why we needed Jesus to be both fully God and fully man in his nature. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 17. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear and death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. See, because of our sin nature, because of who we are in our flesh, because of our fallen nature, we needed Jesus to become like us in our humanity so that he might overcome sin and provide victory for us. Folks, that's the gospel. If we don't have a clear grasp of the importance, the necessity of the incarnation, truly we cannot understand the gospel. And, and so that's where, when I think about a church that is claiming a false Christ, the hope that they offer can only be false too. That's scary to me because people are not being taught the word clearly And the hope that they think that they possess is false. And how will they understand the truth and the hope of the true gospel apart from us standing in the gap and presenting God's word to them with some level of clarity where the Holy Spirit, using the scripture, can change them. We have a great responsibility. It's a great privilege. And I'll I'll go back to this. Ryan's, y'all make fun of me. Somebody's going to come up here one day, take my shoes and socks off because they say I'm sharing the good news. But Romans, we learn how beautiful are the feet of those who share the good news. That's y'all. That is not just a pastor, okay? Everybody ought to be going like, I need to take my shoes off and look at how beautiful my feet are. That's the goal is that we are sharing this good news about Jesus everywhere we go with enough clarity that people are convicted and confronted in a positive way 
with the hope of the gospel. Not wandering around confused or compromised. Because it's clear. And, and how many verses have I shared this morning? Just, just out of curiosity up to this point. Maybe 15 at most. That's not too hard to file those away, put them in a note in your phone. Honestly, that's what I would do. To, today, with today's technology, I'd put a, create a note in my phone that says, Incarnation. You know, what, what does it mean? And I'd run through the verses to, that I've given you today. And that way, if you got in a conversation with somebody, you felt like, I'm ill-equipped. No, you're not. <laughs> You've got to know that you can go back and look at these things carefully and start to delineate a couple things with them to help them see the truth of the gospel. So, we've, we've seen all this. So where, where does that leave us this morning? It leaves us with this. We have a response to this truth. It's not just intellectual. It's not just theological. It's very, very practical. And how it comes out practically, and I've talked about it all morning, but I want to just like put it in a nutshell real quickly. We need to know, first of all, what is sound. Because if we don't, then we're going to be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. And that is not how the Holy Spirit has equipped us to, to live by our, the availability of the Word and our ability to Read it, study it, learn it, hide it in our hearts. So we need to cling to sound truth. That's the first thing, that we not be tossed to and fro. Second, it would be that by which we give an apologetic. And that doesn't mean, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Remember, apologetic, when we talk in biblical terms, is a, it means about a, a sound defense that we're giving. It's that we're able to reason with people about our faith. To, to help them understand the hope of the gospel. Kevin and Angela, can I just share what we talked about about that guy? They, they've had the wonderful privilege of taking a vacation in Ireland for a couple weeks. And they were sitting outside of St. Patrick's Cathedral and uh, listening to the choir sing. Uh, and I, I think that's what you were saying. It's go, going on. There's some worship or something happening. Is that about accurate? Because of the okay, well, well, that's even kind of adds to the story. <laughs> um, so they're there doing tourism thing, tourism things, and uh, in, while they're waiting, this gentleman came up and sat down on the bench, and they started conversing. And it, they come to find out that he's an atheist, and they spent about an hour talking to this guy, and and they said he was challenging in their question or in his questions, but not in a belligerent way. Um, but but you, they could tell also he was kind of skeptical. Um, maybe not totally open to the truth, but wanting to get engaged. Folks, I, and, and my point is this. I praise God that Kevin and Angela have, one, the fortitude to, to not be like set back by that, but also the willingness to go on vacation and engage with someone about the gospel. Because who knows how that might impact him down the road. Because we don't always have like the, the moment to, like what I'd say, sow the bag up on conversion. But we certainly plant seeds, some of us water, but we know ultimately it's the Spirit who does the work. He uses us. 
And that's why we need to be able to have a handle on these truths for apologetic defense, the ability to, wherever we are in whatever moment, to stand firm on the hope of the good news of Jesus Christ, that He has come to redeem us of our sins. And not just us as Christians, but who we might encounter within our, wherever we are, Ireland, wherever you may go on vacation, that we would be ready to share the hope that is within us. We have that responsibility. We need to have these things in our grasp. And lastly, if we don't understand who Christ is, we, we really don't worship well. And I know that sounds simple, but folks, you're here this morning. Yeah, I know you want life improvement and those kind of things, but all of that comes through the person of, of our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. He's the mediator. He's our high priest. He, he is the one worthy. He is the exact representation of the nature of God, their exact imprint. He is the one who bears the glory of God. And so when we worship, that's really where our hearts are poured out. And when we do that corporately, honestly, even, even though, Jeff, you don't sing real well, you make a joyful noise. You've said that to us before. I'm not saying... It's, I mean, I'm not, I'm not throwing you under the bus. He's speaking <laughs> But it's, the, the beauty is, is I know Jeff's heart from walking with him for years and knowing his love for the Lord. And I can say that about so many of us, but it's different than me worshiping in my car, as great as that can be in moments, but it's different corporately coming together and being encouraged by Rain, hopping up at the last minute this morning to use her talents to, to support Mason because Mason's overcoming sickness still. It's as crazy as it is, Greg Burgess being good on the drums. I, I've said this before, give me drums or give me death. <laughs> Percussion helps me in worship. It does. And, and so I, I appreciate those things. And, and worshiping together corporately and then knowing, like, Truthfully, hearing the story from Kevin and Angela yesterday, it transforms my worship today. Because doing life with them and hearing that, it humbles me, it encourages me, it reminds me of God's faithfulness, and it, it, it just changes everything. That's why church is about community doing life together. And let me say this, not just here on a Sunday morning. It needs to happen in grow groups. It needs to happen, like, organically through other relationships. It's not in isolation just here. That, that's why it's important for us to be doing body life together outside of this place. I'm not saying don't be here, but be here and, and do other things to engage and enjoy who one another is. In, even though you may be going, man, I just... I've had wrong views. I loved the shack, and I thought everything was fine with it. It's, it's okay. Now you, you hear, maybe you need to confess that to somebody and say, I need to, to grow more in, in my understanding. That's part of what it means to do life together, that we would be engaged, discipling one another, speaking the words of truth to one another. That, that's why and how knowing who Christ is rightly in his essence, in his being, in both natures, in the one person, it's essential for our worship. So, this morning, I don't know where you are. I, I, 
you may have had some wrong views. Hey, guess what? Me too. <laughs> I, have, I have held some wrong views in my life. And I probably still do. Okay. What does that mean? It means this. When you're challenged with the truth of Scripture and you recognize that you have a, a, hetero, a heterodox view, something that's not quite the right framework, just confess it. <laughs> the Lord knows already, right? Just confess it and say, Lord, I'm, I'm humbled by the fact that I held some things wrong. But what it means is I get to learn and enjoy you differently because I'm having some of those things corrected. And I want to pursue not only just the moment and maybe a message or maybe the moment around a verse, but I want to pursue that more, more wholeheartedly in my own biblical study and discipline that it would refresh me in some other ways. And it might drive you to some other doctrinal truths that, that you also need developed in your life. It's the joy of the journey. And, and I'll tell you, Right now, that this is confessional. That's part of what the last three years have be, been for me pursuing doctoral work. I've read things and, and encountered things that I, I was like, oh, I, I've heard these things before, but the deeper study of them has enriched me. That's good. Because it, it's, it's not just about me. It's about my understanding of who the Lord is. And, and you don't need to go to seminary to do that. Could it help? Sure, it can. It just means you, you pursue him rigorously. Is that fair enough? That, that, is, that you don't just become complacent. That's, that's what modern era is about. We're complacent about everything, uh, or about the, our, our religious life, our spiritual life, but we pursue more heartily all these other things in lives. And, and that's sad because all of these other things, they're going to fade away. It's where rust or moth are going to destroy. They're temporal. But who our Lord is, knowing Him, worshiping Him, that is eternal. And it's eternal with one another. That's where we want to be. That's why it's so important. So I don't know where you are. All that to say, I don't know where you are. But wherever you are, can I just encourage you, be, make a commitment today to, to spend just this quiet moment in the Lord and, and, and say, Lord, you've convinced me that I need to do X, Y, or Z. And I'm going to write it down, and I'm going to be diligent about doing that. Because I don't want to play the Holy Spirit, okay? I don't. And let me say this in, in last. If you're hearing this and you're going, oh, like that helps me understand my need for salvation. You know, you hear my quick testimony about being in fourth grade, learning truths, but then, you know, as a nine-year-old, ten-year-old, I had like this experience where I, I was more confronted about knowing things, but it wasn't until I was 20 years old that I surrendered to Jesus and his lordship. Maybe that describes you today. Maybe you're a young guy or girl in here, and, and you're like, I've never really surrendered my life to Christ. Can I just encourage you, don't delay. Don't delay. It's, you don't have to know everything. It's not complex. All you have to know is this, that you're a sinner, that Jesus Christ came, being fully God and fully man, to provide a means for your salvation, to pay the penalty for your sin, and that, so that you could believe that he was who he was, is, that he died on the cross, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, and you just confess him as Lord and Savior. And you could be an adult here, young or old, it doesn't matter, but if you know and you have this sense that the Holy Spirit is drawing you to salvation, 
please don't delay. Don't, don't delay that response. And here's how we want to do that as our church. We don't, we don't invite you to come forward. We invite you to meet us at the back so we can set up a time to counsel you about those things, to make sure it's really clear. So I want to let you know that I'll be out in the foyer. There'll be other people out in the foyer. If that's your need today, please don't delay. Let's have a, a moment of prayer. Mason, if you'll come lead, lead us in magnificent, marvelous, matchless love. By the way, you hear the attributes, and I hope that the song will like resonate back to a lot of things in the message this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your perfect plan of salvation that was worked out in the fullness of time through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through your, your will as one God, three persons. And Father, this morning, what I want to just do is I want us now to, to respond to you. And we do that simply in this way. We just want to be quiet for about 30 seconds and listen and be obedient to how you speak to, to each of us. Or that, that I, don't, I don't want to get into all that today, but, but Lord, it's, it can be impressions. It could be the reminder of the truth of Scripture. Lord, however you choose to work, we know that you work. Your spirit moves. And so, Lord, I'm, I, again, help us just to be clear in our response and obedient in that. Because you're worth that. It's beneficial to us. So I'm going to be quiet. You do business with the Lord.